Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 216. The Battle of Dorylaeum. In our last episode, the armies of the First Crusade besieged the city of Nicaea until its garrison surrendered. The Turkic troops had no interest in facing the Westerners, though. They submitted to the Byzantines, who duly rewarded them for their wise decision. Alexius's headquarters during the siege were at Pelicanos, not too far from Kibitos. Once he'd paid off the Turks, the emperor called the leaders of the crusade to come and visit him. He planned on rewarding them generously, but he also had his eye on a few nobles who he hadn't met yet. Men like Bohemond's nephew, Tancred, who had crossed the Bosphorus without swearing an oath of allegiance to the Vasilefs. This was a potentially tense encounter. As I mentioned last week, many crusaders had a bad taste in their mouth about how Nicaea had fallen. The Byzantine approach to this holy war was different to that favoured by the Latins, and now the emperor was calling them in, like good little boys, to say yes sir and thank you sir. That seems to have been Tancred's perspective anyway. Apparently he looked at the huge imperial tent they were received in and said he'd swear loyalty to Alexius if he was given a similar tent full of gifts. George Paleologos was by Alexius's side and almost came to blows with the insolent Norman. Again, Bohemond stepped in to restore order. Alexius waited patiently until Tancred and the others had taken the oath. He needed every senior Latin noble to publicly declare their loyalty to him. Why? Because he wasn't going on crusade and he felt that these oaths were the most effective way of ensuring that his interests were respected. Some of the princes did ask the obvious question, why wasn't Alexius going with them? Their oaths were to him, and he'd supplied them superbly from Belgrade to Nicaea. Why shouldn't this happy situation continue? Alexius responded that, alas, he could not. The Balkans were too vulnerable to be left undefended. Which, to be fair, was pretty accurate. According to one Latin chronicle, he specifically name-checked the Cumans as the kind of people who could invade at a moment's notice. And given that this had happened just two years earlier, he clearly had a point. 
In truth, Alexius had half a dozen good reasons not to go on crusade. He would be utterly outnumbered by the Latins and vulnerable to both assassination or accident. Only by taking his entire army with him could he feel safe, and if he did so, he would put a tremendous strain on Anatolia's resources, not to mention inviting invasions back home. Politically, too, Alexius's absence from the capital for an extended period would put the regime in serious danger. Uh, in future episodes, we'll talk about the death of his mother and brother around this period. And the Crusaders, if they thought about it, would definitely not want Alexius to die or be replaced, because who knows if a new emperor would be so supportive of their mission. Alexius also had plans to try and recover the western seaboard of Anatolia. Without Nicaea as a shield, the Turkic garrisons across the coast were now sitting ducks. The recovery of places like Ephesus and Smyrna would also aid the crusade, since it would open up the sea lanes, allowing supplies to reach them once they arrived at Antioch. Despite all these very good reasons, Alexius's absence was criticised by some in the crusading army, and you can understand why. We're here to free your subjects. Why are we doing all the work? The emperor did his best to equip the Latins with everything they could need in his absence. He loaded them up with supplies and pack animals. He sent a representative to guide them, and he gave them military and diplomatic advice, both of which turned out to be very helpful. The guide he was sending with them was his most trusted general, Tatikios. Tatikios was a Turkish or half-Turkish slave who Alexius's father had captured when Tatikios was a child. He was a similar age to Alexius, and the two were raised together. Tatikios had been emancipated long ago and joined the army alongside Komnenos. He'd become Alexius's most trusted troubleshooter and was now handed this hugely important role. Not only was Tatikios there to lead the crusaders through Anatolia, but he was to receive any cities they captured and place them under imperial control. Perhaps even more importantly, Tatikios and the 2,000 or so Byzantine troops he commanded had to race ahead of the main crusading force to communicate with the locals. Anatolian Romans, who lived along the roads they'd be travelling, needed to be warned about the Latin host. They had to be cajoled into bringing all the surplus food and supplies they had out to the main road to sell to the crusaders. If you don't, they will come and take it. As we discussed before, Tatikios would travel alongside Bohemond all the way to Antioch, suggesting that the Norman was also considered, to some extent, Alexius's agent. The emperor had various strongholds in mind that he wanted back in the imperial fold, though he made it clear that these were all subsidiary targets. The next major goal of the crusade must be to capture Antioch. I'll explain why when we get there, but it was clearly spelt out that Antioch must fall if the knights were going to make it to Jerusalem. As an aside, Anna simply tells us that Tatikios was a valiant fighter who kept a cool head in dangerous situations. It's the Latin historians who claim that the general's nose had been cut off, and he now wore a gold replica in its place. 
As best we can tell, the damage to his face came from battle rather than a Byzantine punishment. Next, Alexius tried to pass on as much information as possible. He reiterated his advice about fighting the nomads. You have to stick together, and once you drive them off, don't chase them. He also gave them advice on the political situation in the east. Many cities around Antioch were still in the hands of Armenian warlords, who might be able to assist you. He also helped them organize an embassy, which set off soon afterwards for Cairo. The Byzantines and the Fatimids were still on reasonable terms. Both were fighting against Seljuk expansion, and though the Fatimids were unlikely to welcome the Crusaders into Palestine, perhaps they could avoid a direct confrontation. Alexius then wished them all a warm goodbye, and the Crusaders left Nicaea on the 26th of June, 1097. As soon as the Crusaders hit the road, the challenges they faced became apparent. Such an enormous number of people and animals just couldn't march together. A man at the very back of the army would be about three days' march behind Tatikios and Bohemond at the front. This meant that by the time he reached the same spot where the vanguard had been 72 hours earlier, the grass had been flattened to mud, the wells drained dry, and neighbouring fields picked clean. In order to keep everyone fed, the army had to divide into smaller contingents, as they'd done when crossing the Balkans. The obvious problem, though, was that it made them more vulnerable to attack. They knew that Kilij Arslan was out there somewhere, and they couldn't afford to be picked off one by one. Another problem was the lack of a single commander. The Council of Princes had worked well so far, but once they were all separated, who would make the crunch decisions? Communication was vital, and it wouldn't be easy, given the sheer diversity of the crusading coalition. One of our eyewitnesses, Fulker of Charch, a priest, commented on this. Who ever heard such a mixture of languages in one army, since there were French, Flemings, Frisians, Gauls, Allobroge, Lotharingians, Alemanni, Bavarians, Normans, English, Scots, Aquitanians, Italians, Dacians, Apulians, Iberians, Bretons, Greeks, and Armenians. He adds that if any Breton or Teuton wished to question me, I could neither understand nor answer. The army agreed to split up on the road from Nicaea and meet up again one day's ride to the south. As predicted, it took three days for the army to coalesce around a local river before setting off again on the 29th of June. Now the army divided in two, but tried to keep riders going back and forth so that the two halves wouldn't lose touch with one another. Taking the lead were Tatikios and Bohemond, joined by the northern French, led by Robert of Normandy, Robert of Flanders, and Stephen of Blois. Bringing up the rear, therefore, were Godfrey of Bouillon, Hugh of Vermandois, and Raymond of Toulouse. The next rendezvous point was to be Dorylaeum. Dorylaeum has appeared many times over the course of our narrative. It was the first major staging post of the Roman army 
on the road east. Imagine an emperor of the past deciding to go on campaign. He would gather up a portion of the Tachmata, those stationed around the capital, and cross the Bosphorus. He would then march to Nicaea, while messengers crisscrossed the themes, telling everyone to gather at Doraleum. The emperor would then march out from Nicaea, taking the road that wound slowly up the 800-metre climb that took you from the coastal plain up onto the plateau. Another day or so beyond that was a wide open plain fed by good rivers. This was Doraleum. There the emperor would be met by contingents from the Thracision and the Opsikion, who would then form up with him as they crossed the plateau on their way to Armenia or Cilicia. This, then, was where the crusaders would next gather to water their horses together and hold a council. What they didn't know, though, was that high up above them, watching their every move, were Kilij Arslan's men. The sultan had been humiliated by the loss of Nicaea. If he hadn't been absent fighting the Danishmans, then he could have stopped all of this from happening. After being driven off by the crusaders, he'd sent urgent messages to all the other Turkic groups in Anatolia, including the Danishmans themselves. He urged them to send riders to assist him. We have to stop the westerners before they reach the plateau. If they destroy me, he argued, you will be next. We can only guess how many he'd recruited by the time the Crusaders approached Doraleum, perhaps 15,000. At this stage, the nomads of Anatolia simply fought on horseback. They hadn't begun to recruit their own infantry or mixed forces. These were step archers, here to defend the grasslands of the plateau, grasslands that they'd made their home. Kilij Arslan's plan was to ambush the Crusaders as they made their way onto the plateau. This is the moment when they would be most vulnerable. The nomads would be operating on flat ground with space to manoeuvre, while the Latins would still be winding their way up the mountain road. There was real urgency in his strategy. He couldn't afford to meet the full Western army in battle, since they would outnumber him. He had to isolate and destroy their vanguard while they were detached from the rest of their number. For two days... Bohemond and Tatikios marched at the head of the crusader force with no alarm. During the afternoon of the 30th of June, though, reports arrived that there were Turks up ahead. Everyone was put on alert, but only the sultan's scouts seemed to have been spotted. The vanguard made camp that night without alarm and continued on their march the next morning, the 1st of July. Having just crossed a small river, the army began to move into an area of open ground at the junction of two valleys. I've put up a map of the likely battleground on the website. It seems that Kilij Arslan had chosen his spot well, because the lay of the land obscured much of his army from the crusaders' view. As Bohemond got a better look across the open ground, he was startled to discover the sheer number of Turkic riders gathering for an attack. He quickly barked out a string of orders. His scouts were to race back down the road to alert the rest of the crusading army. Meanwhile, he ordered the infantry to build a camp as fast as they possibly could, choosing a spot close to the river where marshy ground would afford them some protection. 
In the meantime, he and Robert of Normandy gathered up all the cavalry they had with them, perhaps no more than 3,000 men, and bravely attempted to push the Turks back. The Sultan's men dealt swiftly with this attack. A hail of arrow fire turned the knights around, and within the hour, Bohemond and Robert had been forced to retreat all the way back to the makeshift camp. As you can imagine, back at the camp all was frenzy and chaos. The more disciplined soldiers were putting their back into digging trenches, while the non-combatants and pack animals were being herded into the centre. Remember, this was not a disciplined army with clearly defined roles. This was an amalgam of the retinues of three Latin nobles alongside one Byzantine unit. In and amongst them were civilians, priests, squires, and soldiers with no fixed allegiance. All these disparate elements were not required to march in any particular line or formation. So as the professionals were furiously digging and putting on armour, there were others outside the camp dithering or panicking. There were also more people streaming onto the field of battle from the winding road who didn't know what was happening ahead of them. They soon would. Bohemond and Robert now dismounted and ordered their comrades to do likewise, shoving their horses through the lines to try and get them out of harm's way. Fully armoured in metal from head to toe, the cavalrymen now took up position in the front line facing outwards towards the Turks. Behind them, the construction of the camp had to continue as fast as humanly possible. Bohemond and Robert began calling their infantrymen to line up alongside them. A human wall must face out in front of the camp to stop the Turks from getting inside. Kilij Arslan bore down on the quivering mass of humanity gathering around the camp. Hundreds of people were now trapped between Bohemond's line and the onrushing Turks. Civilians and soldiers alike were slashed to pieces as the steppe riders raced forward to press their attack. One of the northern knights, Robert of Paris, his conscience stirred by the sight of slain innocents, rushed forward to help them, only to feel the sting of multiple arrows thudding into him, slowing his movements until he was cut down by an advancing nomad. Beaumont and Robert had to scream above the din that the only way to survive was to stand firm. Do not leave the line. The Turks now began to circle their prey. I like Thomas Asprage's description of Arslan's men as a rampaging pack of highly manoeuvrable mounted archers, itching to exploit the open ground, wheeling their nimble-footed horses in an encircling torrent, unleashing a deadly cloud of arrows. This was the step way. The nomads would always attempt to encircle their enemies, knowing that arrows flying in from every direction was sure to break the morale of massed infantry. They would add to their terror by yelling and shouting their war cries as they unleashed volley after volley. This certainly had the intended effect on the non-combatants. One survivor described them as screaming like demons, another that they howled like wolves. Fulker of Chartres was amongst them and described the horror at the heart of the camp. All of us, huddled together like sheep in a fold, trembling and terrified, were fenced in by the enemy on all sides, so that we could not turn in any direction. It was evident that this had befallen us because of our sins. One of the soldiers would later write of his shock at the distance the nomad's arrows could reach, either striking his armour from a great distance or sailing over him to hit an unsuspecting target in the centre of the camp. 
The only hope for the vanguard was to keep up an unyielding defence for as long as possible in the hope that the rest of the crusaders would come to their rescue. For the first hour it felt like the line could buckle at any moment. Priests were praying through floods of tears, and the screeches of people and animals gave the impression that the end was nigh. But somehow the line held. In the chaos all Bohemond and Robert could do was stay still. They could trust their own men to do likewise, but the key to their survival was that all the soldiers stayed in close formation. Their armour gave them a chance to survive the arrow fire, and created a barrier, preventing the Turks from reaching their families and animals. Leading by example, the northern lords held grimly on in the face of constant attack. With the Latins pinned down, Kilij Arslan gave the order to break through the line. His men began charging in, on foot and horse, trying to break the westerners up. Fierce hand-to-hand combat took place throughout the morning, Tancred's brother William amongst those who were killed. The Turks kept up constant pressure. When they weren't charging into the line, they were firing arrows from a distance. But as the minutes turned to hours, hope was kindled. Women began to sneak across the marshland, filling buckets with water from the river and bringing it to the grateful knights. Trapped inside their metal cocoons, many would have perished without this refreshment. Meanwhile, prayers and chants went up and down the line, encouraging everyone to stay strong. According to a member of Bohemond's entourage, this coalesced into the call, Come what may, stand firm in the faith of Christ, and have faith in the victory of the Holy Cross, because today, if it pleases God, all riches shall be given you. Or, in a more direct translation, today, if it pleases God, you will all become rich. It's a great insight into the mentality of the soldiers. Remember that this was written long after Jerusalem was taken. The author could have cleaned it up and removed any mention of plunder, but instead he felt it was not only laudable, but entirely relevant to what kept men fighting when the odds were against them. The Turks were struggling to fully encircle the camp. It was somewhat protected by the edge of the plain and the marshy ground which the nomads were reluctant to ride across. But with the morning wearing on, riders became bolder, daring to dart across the bog and break into the camp. To the horror of the civilians, Turkish soldiers suddenly appeared amongst them, swords raised, thrashing at anything that moved. The foot soldiers soon overwhelmed them and closed the gaps in the line, but it was clear that if relief didn't arrive soon, they would lose this struggle. Another witness claims that some of the women began making themselves up, preparing for the inevitable Turkish victory by trying to look pretty enough not to be killed on the spot. Hours earlier, Bohemond's scouts had raced the two or three miles back down the road to find Godfrey and Raymond's men. That might not sound like a great distance, but remember that the Crusader line stretched for miles and miles further back. By the time the news had filtered down the line and decisions were being made, another hour had passed. Fortunately, there was no confusion about what needed to be done. Godfrey Raymond and Hugh of Vermandois all strapped on their armour and mounted their horses, instructing their followers to do likewise. The cavalry had to be the ones to race ahead to relieve the northerners, but even acting quickly, it still took the relief force all morning to reach the battlefield, the road ahead of them, 
was choked with people and pack animals, all slowly climbing the mountain road. Riding as fast as they reasonably could, the knights arrived at the plain around noon. Bohemond had been fighting since around seven in the morning, and his relief must have been palpable. Still, the battle was far from over. First to arrive was Godfrey of Bouillon with fifty knights. Yes, just fifty. The relief force was arriving in dribs and drabs. Godfrey charged at what he thought was Kilij Arslan, causing the Turks to break off their attack on the camp and turn to meet the new arrivals. Soon, Raymond of Toulouse and Hugh of Vermandois appeared with more knights. Now the Turks began to falter. They still outnumbered the Latins, but they were very tired from a full morning's battle and had loosed most of their arrows. Turning to face the newcomers also exposed their flank to Bohemond. As the two sides engaged, Kilij Arslan looked on nervously. The day could still be his, but the clock was ticking loudly. Suddenly, another detachment of the southern French appeared behind the Turkish line. Supposedly, they were led by Adamar of Lepuy, the papal legate, though some have their doubts about that. By luck more than design, these knights had clambered up a neighbouring hill to avoid the cluster of soldiers and dead bodies now piling up at the natural entry point to the plain. As they rode down onto the open ground, they found themselves to the rear of the Turkish line. Spotting the sultan's camp unguarded, they made straight for it. Turning around sharply, Kilij Arslan saw a disaster about to unfold. Now he was the one being encircled, and even Bohemond's men were edging forward to engage. Before a panicked rout could develop, the sultan gave the signal to retreat. The Turks galloped across the field towards their camp, only to find crusaders busy killing and looting. They rode on past it, and fled the battlefield. The fresher knights gave chase, and ignoring Alexius's instructions, some would pursue the sultan for the next two days. Fortunately for them, the Turks had given up, and no ambushes were laid. The Crusaders had won a famous victory, and the path across the plateau now lay open. The Battle of Dorylaeum was a great victory for the Crusaders, once again they had overcome the difficulties of their unwieldy, unorganised state and used their superior numbers to their advantage. Historian John France notes that there was a lot of luck involved in the early stages of the crusade. Kilij Arslan's trip to Melitene allowed them to coalesce at Nicaea, just in time to stop him from getting back into the city. And here again the crusaders arrived in the nick of time to save their colleagues. But... John France also says, The victors made their own luck. It was their solid resistance that Kilij Arslan underestimated, hence their victory and his defeat. This rested on the manner of war in the West, which called for disciplined close-quarter fighting in which heavily armoured men played a key role. Ultimately, however, they differed from earlier enemies of the Turks by their motivation their religious fanaticism, which underpinned their fighting style. And that's what stands out for me. We've seen many Byzantine armies across the centuries flee from the battlefield when the going got tough. And it's not really about styles of fighting or nationality or even training, sometimes. 
It's about morale and motivation and belief. When men stand and fight and refuse to retreat, more often than not they emerge victorious. But many will die if you do this. One of the problems with Byzantine armies was that they could always run home. Byzantine armies were usually a combination of recently conscripted infantry alongside the professional cavalry. When battles became heated, the foot soldiers often panicked and fled for their homes. Even if that was a month's march away, they still had somewhere to aim for. The Crusaders, of course, had more motivation than your average Byzantine soldier. They were on a religious mission, and some were dreaming of riches that might transform their lives. But they also had nowhere to run to. The civilians amongst them, the most likely to want to run away, stayed. If they ran, they'd be alone in a foreign country, and even more likely to die. That's the kind of motivation that money can't buy. And it was crucial in transforming defeat into victory. There is a tragic aspect to the Crusader victory, from a Byzantine point of view. As Antony Caldellis points out, this was how the Battle of Manzikert was meant to play out. As you may recall, Romanos Theoyenis also divided a giant army in two as he approached the city of Manzikert. But the other half of his force fled when they came into contact with Alparslan's troops. If that army had stayed together and come to their emperor's aid, then the Romans may have won the day. They may have won a peace treaty that would have saved Anatolia from further harassment. It's also worth noting that no other Christian army would ever enjoy this kind of success again. If you face steppe archers on open ground, you must have overwhelming superiority of numbers. It's the only way to withstand their arrow fire and push them back. Future crusading and Byzantine armies will fail to heed this lesson and come to grief on the Anatolian plateau. In the aftermath of the battle, the Crusaders took some well-earned rest. They still hadn't actually reached Dorylaeum. Remember that they were ambushed as they reached the plateau, about 20 miles from their actual destination. But since those writing the histories didn't know the local place names, the battle was named after the army camp they were headed for. According to one chronicler, 4,000 Christians died in the battle, and 3,000 Turks. It's impossible to say how accurate those numbers are, but graves had to be dug, so maybe he had an accurate count. Over the next few days, stories were told long into the night about this glorious victory, and everyone involved seems to have agreed that the key figure in their success was Bohemond. Fourteen years earlier, Giscard's son had been in a similar position. At Larissa, in central Greece, Alexius's nomads had pinned his army down, and he'd urged his men to stand and fight. They had routed instead. Faced with the same scenario, Bohemond had been determined to change the outcome. After establishing a line around the camp, Bohemond and Robert of Normandy had led by example, fighting in the front line, never giving an inch, and encouraging their men to stay the course. They were now heroic figures to the rank and file. 
Some men had given up everything to come east. They had seen their friends die. They had been ill and hungry and miserable. Now they were dividing the sultan's treasure between them, and they owed it all to the protection of the lord and the leadership of Bohemond. The sultan's camp contained many fine things. Amongst the loot that was acquired was gold and silver, fine swords and shields, wine, grain, horses, camels, and other pack animals. By the way, none of the Crusader histories mentions Tatikios or the Byzantines, even though they must have fought in the front line throughout the battle. There was little incentive in glorifying their role in these events. Back at Constantinople, the news was greeted with great cheer. The reconquest of Western Anatolia could begin. Next time on the podcast, the Byzantine troops will descend on Chaka's base at Smyrna, determined to take their cities back, while the Crusaders will press forward across the plateau. While the Byzantines will enjoy great success, the Crusaders will suffer terribly. The Anatolian plateau is an arid place in high summer, and Kilij Arslan was not finished yet. The Sultan adopted a scorched earth policy to deny the Westerners the resources they needed to survive in this alien terrain. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 